0: Today, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15. And what we're going to be considering today is the Jerusalem Council. Uh, a major conflict has arisen within the community of faith uh, between what is commonly called the Judaizers uh, and the Gentile believers. Uh, but basically, the question that has arisen is what place does the law of Moses have? Uh, in the believer's life? And should we hold the Gentile believers to the same standard, specifically around the issue of circumcision? Uh, For the Judaizers were basically declaring to those Gentile believers that they needed to be circumcised to be saved. And so to prepare us for this message, we're gonna watch a five-minute video of circumcision. (laughs) No, that would be disturbing. Uh, I wish I would have just went to like film, but then not actually went there. But um, you see the hand with the knife. <laughs> uh, what we're actually going to be considering is what, what is threatened by this controversy is obviously the unity within the community of faith, but even deeper, the very foundation of faith, which is the gospel, the good news and grace. And really, the, at the center of this conversation is misunderstanding of grace and the need for the church to, to shape the community around that one-way love of God. And someone very cleverly said, since the message is about grace, uh, that, you know, they're like, if you really want to be, uh, really be relevant, you should call the message 50 Shades of Grace. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> I wanted to say that's what the message is called and try to keep a straight face, but I could not do it. Um, oh, the dangers of trying to make yourself culturally relevant. Uh, that, that is not what the message is called. Uh, what we're going to be considering today is how grace really became threatened by this controversy. Uh, Paul Zoll, in his book, Grace in Practice, uh, said something really brilliant. And I think that this is so true um, of how counterintuitive grace is to the human mind to the human spirit, especially within this current age in which we live. He said, nobody welcomes grace. It's a really interesting statement. He says, but everybody pants for it every second of every day. Nobody welcomes grace, but everybody pants for it every second of every day. Because grace is about what God has accomplished for you and I through Jesus apart from us. And so it offends that sense of individualization. It it offends that sense that I am, there must be something good in me worth saving, that somehow I can contribute to God's salvation plan uh, for humanity and for myself. And the danger and the risk that often arises within the church is this temptation to do what I call front-loading the gospel, uh, to try to add a bunch of hoops that need to be jumped through, uh, to jump through just to make sure that you truly are on board. And that is a real threat. And it was a threat in the early church. And it is one that I think we can learn a lot from. So I just want to share with you this one verse before we start reading from 15. Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. Remember what he said to his disciples. He said, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets, which I'm sure was the most disappointing words they had ever heard, because the law was an impossibility. Uh, They couldn't keep the law. Uh, The problem with Israel's entire history was that they were lawbreakers. They couldn't keep the covenant with God. And because of that, the law then for them became a curse. It was a revelation of sin, but never gave them the power to overcome it. And I think that that what we need to understand and what the early church was defending is that Jesus did not destroy the law, but he is the fulfillment of the law. And because of that fulfillment, in him we find a new covenant, the covenant of faith that comes through grace, uh, God's one-way love toward you and I. So to begin with, in, verse, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, I want us to take this into consideration. Grace is unfair, I want you to just take those words down because you may not frame grace this way. Grace is unfair. It's unfair. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem. So this is a major debate that's happening within the churches as these Judaizers have entered in saying that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. That's the exact opposite of what Paul and Barnabas had seen, which is the Gentiles, the evidence that they were saved is the fact that the Holy Spirit was falling upon these people as they placed their faith in Jesus. And we'll we'll get to Paul's own argument from Romans uh, in just a moment to defend uh, this reality that circumcision is not necessary for salvation, uh, but that salvation comes through faith in Jesus alone, through grace alone. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So they needed to go to the council, uh, the Jerusalem council, to actually figure out how to move forward with this controversy. To the apostles and the elders about this question, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So, even within the Jerusalem council, there were those who believed that circumcision needed to be a part of the saving experience. In fact, We know from Paul's letter to the Galatians that Peter himself fell into the trappings of this legalism that was entering in and threatening the gospel of peace. In fact, Paul said, Peter himself, I withstood Peter to his face, for he played the hypocrite, for he would eat with the Gentiles, but when the Judaizers would come in, he would separate himself from them to try to appease both parties. And so there is this huge controversy going on, but what I want to set up is the context, Because we forget the context. Uh, The context here is that these early leaders had literally inherited a long-standing and deeply held religious system, and they had to discern with a a clearly written-out foundation the specifics of how this, this Old Testament system related to Christ's death, his resurrection, and ascension. So how does the law actually work with what we're proclaiming about Christ as the Messiah, as Lord, as King? And so to do so, they had to listen to the arguments, pay attention to what the Spirit was currently doing, and then together they had to make a real-life decision. Because you remember, God's Word, actually, out of Genesis, chapter 17, verses 9 through 11, in regards to circumcision, the, the very Word that He gave to Abraham, it says, "'And God said to Abraham, "'As for you, you shall keep my covenant.'" you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God utilized this outward sign, this physical sign, as a means to show to the world this covenantal people. This is a way that you show that you were committed uh, to God and a part of his covenantal family. And this sign was an important sign, an an integral part of the Jewish faith. So how does that align with the fact that these people are claiming to be born again, essentially, to receive into themselves the Holy Spirit uh, by placing their faith in Jesus? Do we not need to hold them to that same covenant? Since when does the covenant of God become null and void? But the early church, we have to remember this. They didn't actually have the New Testament to lean on as part of their scriptures, the early church was the New Testament. (laughs) That's really important for us to remember. We forget that. They didn't have the completed Bible. The letters that make up our New Testament were being written, beginning to be written in this time. And so the words were being written as the story unfolded. So the only authoritative written text that they did have before them, the Old Testament, clearly spelled out that the people who were part of the covenant community were expected to follow the law and become circumcised and so this is the controversy how does the law fit into the gospel how does the old testament scriptures fit into the gospel and what these early church leaders the very ones who wrote the new testament were wrestling with is how does the gospel change the way that we look at covenantal relationship with god and this is the danger of front-loading the gospel. And it really was the Apostle Paul, though Peter is the one that sets the platform uh, within, the conference, in, within the, this particular conversation in the Jerusalem Council. It is Paul who most deeply thought through this issue. In fact, in Romans 4, 3, Paul says this very specifically. In th- this is them as they're being led by the Spirit to think out the theological Um, ways that the gospel, that is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, played itself out in relationship to the law. And Paul writes this in Romans 4.3. And what does the scripture say? And this is really fascinating. Paul draws from Genesis. It says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Paul goes on to say, this righteousness that was accounted to Abraham was, was a righteousness that was accounted to his faith in God's promises. He goes on to say in verses nine and 10, he goes, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? So Paul makes this brilliant theological point that even within the Old Testament, Abraham's faith in, in Yahweh, in that in God, uh, was accounted to him as righteousness before God commanded that he be circumcised. He was already accounted as righteous for believing God. And so these early Christians were thinking through the theological implications of righteousness by faith, which is played out fully through Jesus who fulfilled the law completely. But what I want us to understand is what is the reasoning, what's behind this desire to create Rules and regulations based upon one's own faith in Christ. Why were those early Christians trying to front load the gospel? And I would argue because grace is unfair. Grace provokes a never failing resistance. Why? Because from the human perspective, it's unfair. I want you guys to really think about that. Society is always skeptical of grace, because society is driven by observable achievement, quantity, and evidence. I think you want to keep in mind that we are driven by Aristotle's uh, works on ethics, which was a good man is defined by the good deeds that he does, observable good deeds. You are defined as good by the good that you do, period. Period. It is a works-based system that is played out in every area of our society. And I want you to know that grace is the opposite. It is truly the alien work of God, because it is the one-way love of God, not a two-way love, which is how our society functions. Acceptance in our world is always hinged upon contingency, or what Paul's all calls two-way love. That is, I will if you. I was talking with Darcy this morning about my message and, and utilized this example. And I said, the example, honey, is, is how we function even within our marriage. Do you want to show me grace when I'm a jerk to you? And she's like, no. And this is what, what's the natural outcome of, of conflict. Even with our own kids, there is a contingency often based upon our love that we function based upon a tit for tat. I will if you. Now, I love you even in spite. Now, I I say to my kids, I love you even when you are at your worst. But there is something. But I will say that there is a temptation to withhold the one thing that we as people need more than anything else when we're hurt. And that is our love. That's the reality of human existence. I want you to see how, how, unfair grace is when you actually look at how society plays itself out all around us the world loves law because law is what if grace is unfair law is what fair that's why laws exist to create a fair society to protect our freedoms but i th- i want you to think about how challenging this is because this resistance to grace, because grace is so foreign, is why our society, as Brian Stevenson brilliantly put in the talk that I heard him give last week or two weeks ago in London, is why our society has become increasingly punitive. He even posed the question, why is it that we always feel the need to punish those who are broken? We want to punish broken people. All we have to do is look at what's going on in our world. What did we just have happen this week, Friday, Another high school shooting, 10 people killed by a 17-year-old boy. And what is the natural reaction of the human heart to to that boy's outcome? He took life. His life should be snuffed out. He's an animal. He's crazy. He's damaged goods. Put him away. Grace is not the first thing that comes to mind for him. We want to show grace to the families that lost loved ones, but we do not want to show grace to our enemies. But the grace of God is unfair because his grace is for that boy the same way it is for you. Amen. That's hard for us. It's really hard for us. What it makes us is extremely skeptical because it's so counterintuitive. It's unfair. When Ted Bundy was executed, two days before he was executed, Dr. Dobson went in and shared the gospel with this, this horrific animal serial killer. And Ted Bundy Recorded the message, the conversation was recorded, accepted and received into himself Jesus Christ. And many Christians were like, There's no way that's true. There's no way that God could forgive that. He killed dozens of women. How could God possibly forgive that? But that's how unfair grace is. God's love on the cross, revealed in his son, is that Jesus died not only for the victim, but for the victimizer. Amen. That's the gospel. It doesn't make sense. When our president made a statement that, that this, these gang members from Mexico are animals, and the press had a heyday and blew it out of proportion and said that he was saying that about all immigrants, and I, don't think, I think he was careless with his words, but I don't think he meant it about all immigrants, but he still said it about, and we're like, well, good. At least he only said it about them those bad people. But he also proclaims a faith in the same God that we worship and serve and claims Christianity for himself. That is not a Christian message because all people deserve the grace of God. That's the gospel. Actually, nobody deserves the grace of God. That's the gospel, and it comes to us because it's unfair. It's not fair. It goes against what is our... Our, our, our default setting. Because if we're offended, we want to offend. Because when we're hurt, we want to hurt in exchange. We want laws that are broken, we want people to pay for that. But the gospel comes to us and says, I love you, I died for you. Grace comes before confession. Do you know that? It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The concept of unmerited favor and forgiveness is considered distasteful by our society. That is the message that we receive. And often as a a church, we often take it in without even questioning it for a second. We need to remember that law and gospel are two very different things. In fact, John 1.17 says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So grace is unfair. And that's what Paul and Barnabas We're debating with these Judaizers over it. Listen, we know it doesn't make sense to you. We know you wanna make them hold to the law, but Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. His grace is given freely to those that put their faith in him, just like Abraham who believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. So it is. How can we put this demand upon these people because there is a new covenant that is established by our new king, Jesus Christ, our savior, and you cannot put that upon the people which brings us to verses 6 to 12, because grace is unfair because grace liberates us from our brokenness. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter has come around in this argument, and now he is defending the very word that Paul and Barnabas has brought to the council. And he says, and God, who knows the heart, and he's talking obviously about his time with Cornelius and his family that we considered just a, uh, a couple months ago, where this Gentile family, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. That was the evidence that God had accepted them. Uh, They began to speak in tongues. Uh, They were all baptized in the name of Jesus, the whole household. Uh, And and Peter is saying, we we can't ignore this work. This isn't about something they must do to be saved. They, They are saved. So why would we require that of them if God has accepted them as they are? Because the new covenant is a circumcision of the heart by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he says, he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you trying to keep, make them keep a law that we haven't been able to keep ourselves? So, man, that's just a nail in the coffin right there. He goes, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas followed up Peter's speech with tangible evidence, the witnessing of all that God has been doing throughout the known world through the preaching of the gospel. So Peter, first of all, establishes here that new foundation. By my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, the good news. It is good news it is good news about what God has already done for them in Jesus Christ. Last week uh, at an evangelism conference uh, with Luis Palau, Luis Palau, who got up and shared with all the pastors uh, in the greater Portland metro area, um, it was such a powerful time. Uh, for here is a man dying of cancer, and he said, I will, not, I will be with the Lord by probably next Christmas. And yet he spoke of the gospel with such joy. I mean, the moment he started talking about the goodness of God's love toward us in Jesus, the moment he started talking about grace, he would just start weeping. And he says, listen, you can never paint the gospel too beautiful. It is, as C.S. Lewis calls it uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia, deep magic from before time. It is a powerful, beautiful thing. And I love this because Peter establishes the new foundation. 2 Corinthians 3.6, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Jesus is the founder of a new covenant, not of the letter, that is the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul would go on to say, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, there is liberty. You see, he then dismantles the old by saying, why are you putting God to test? Why are you placing this law upon them when we couldn't even keep it? So he's, the new foundation is found through the preaching of the gospel, the completed work in Christ who establishes a new covenant through that work, through his life, death, and his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the father, that this is a work of the heart. It's a circumcision of the heart, faith in the heart. But then he says, on top of that, why would we even want to put that demand on them? Because we ourselves broke it. That's why Jesus came, because the law was a curse for us, because the law was never capable of actually empowering us to obey it. All it did was reveal to us what sin is. That's why Paul said the law is good, for had I not known the law, I wouldn't have known what sin is. But I want to remind you guys, what's the purpose of the law? We love law because it's fair, but we can't keep the law. We break the law. It's a yoke for us. The moment a law is given, we break it. I went up to, uh, up to Olympia yesterday to pick up my motorcycle from my brother who's had it for a year, um, and it's a 1973 CB750, so it's really old. And I had an existential crisis yesterday. I really, really began to think I'm not going to make it uh, home because I, I, I've never driven on the freeway that long on a really old motorcycle that shakes really, really hard. And I, I paid a lot to make that bike look cool. I paid for it, I should say, yesterday on the, because it's so naked that the wind felt like it was gonna blow me off. And I was going 75 on the highway and I kept looking down. I'm like, I'm, I'm not gonna make it home. This is so scary. So I thought the way to get home was to, be, to start driving really fast. I don't know why it's doing that. I'm gonna do this. Okay, it should be good. Uh, and, and I began to break the law. If I drive faster, I'll get home faster and less likely to die. We can justify breaking <laughs> laws all the time. And there, there are moments where I'm like, I'm like, what am I doing? And there's no speedometer on my bike, but I did have my phone attached to the handlebars with a speedometer app. And then I'm like, it's probably wrong. I'm probably not going that fast, but I was <laughs> going way faster than I ought to go. Uh, and, and I just realized that like when laws are given, we just naturally, if you tell, your, you tell a toddler not to do something, what's the first thing they want to do? do it. Do the exact opposite. If you want to get your kids to do something, tell them not to do it. Uh, And I think that this is the reality. The law is a yoke that we can't bear in any form. But I I love this. Uh, Galatians 2.16 said, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. No one. And so I want us to realize here what Peter is establishing is that the law enslaves, but the gospel of grace, grace liberates. God's one way love toward us when we receive it by faith, not by doing this or that thing, not by front loading the gospel, not by keeping this or that command, not by crossing our T's and dotting our I's, but by simple recognition. I am broken. I am I am in need of a savior. I receive into myself. I receive you, Jesus, and your love for me. This is the gospel that saves. This is why it says specifically, whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead shall be saved. And we wanna add all kinds of things to that. Immediately, you wanna add to that. You're like, and does this, but that's not what it says. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord That means that I'm not Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, that he is everything that he said he is, that the witnesses to those who saw Jesus resurrected from the the dead, we can believe them and trust them. And the the evidence of that is the sending of the spirit, which continues to empower men and women, boys and girls for the last 2000 years as we are children of that new covenant. The problem is the law couldn't do that. And this is why it says in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. I love it because this idea that grace brings liberty uh, is, direct, is in direct correspondence to Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 11, when he said, come to me, all you are weary. He speaks to a weary world that is in bondage to the inability to surpass, our inability to surpass where we currently are. Our desire to be more than what we are, but our inability to get there. That fundamental brokenness in the human psyche that we call sin. That rebellion against God's rule. That rejection of God's grace. Jesus says to all, come to me all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And then he uses that same terminology. Peter says, why do we want to put this yoke upon them? Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Notice it's a different kind of yoke than the yoke of the law. And he says, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said in another place in the Gospels, in John chapter six, verse 29, when he was asked, what must we do to do the work of God? And he said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Counterintuitive. Trust me and my work. That is the source of power. What's fascinating is that use of that word yoke, take my yoke upon you. What's the purpose of a yoke? What is a yoke used for? Work, it's used for work. You put a yoke on an ox so that it, it distributes the weight. If a yoke is made properly, if there's no imperfections in that yoke, it should allow the ox to do its work with ease. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. This is the way that you can do work and rest at the same time because what we're working from is our belief in him. Now, I think it's important for us to understand that because it's easy to talk about grace as God's one-way love and leave it at that. But then what we end up doing is truncating grace and end up possibly violating it by either becoming legalists or libertines. And neither of those are okay. And so how do we move forward with this grace That is unfair because God gives it to those who, because God, through Jesus, died for the victim and the victimizer. He died for those who were shot and the one who shot. Isn't that crazy? How is it that we experience the freedom that the gospel comes to give? It isn't through trying to keep a law that we can't keep, but it's through receiving the law of grace that is, receiving the finished work of Jesus. But what is the outworking of that? And this is where this particular passage gets strange because the half-brother of Jesus, who is now the leader over Jerusalem, over the Jerusalem church, James, gets up. And here I want us to see that grace is unfair, that grace liberates, but that grace also has the power to unite, to bring unity. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And here he quotes from Amos, uh, the minor prophet Amos chapter 9, uh, and specifically verses 11 through 12. He changes a couple words. But he says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old and in the in the context of the prophecy from Amos God has brought judgment upon Israel's rebellion against his covenant but through that rebellion he says he promises to to save a people for himself and not just from from Judah from Israel but he also promises to actually save for himself a people from the Edomites, which if you know anything about the Edomites, they come from Esau. Esau, I have hated Jacob, I have loved. This isn't talking about God hating someone and loving someone else, but God's preference. I have chosen Jacob that through him, I might fulfill my covenant uh, to actually bring redemption to the whole world uh, over Esau. But here he says, I will save some of the Edomites for myself along with other Gentiles from all the nations. So God's redemptive purpose was always for the world. It was never just for the Jewish people. In fact, he chose Israel that through Israel, they might be a blessing to all. They might be a reflection of the covenantal God. This is why I believe that Jesus is the true Israel and the fulfillment of all of God's prophecy in regards to Israel. But here, it goes on to say this. Therefore, my judgment, this this is James speaking again, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God not trouble them with what? Specifically circumcision. And you just know that all the Gentile men are really stoked. There's a reason why they circumcise at seven days old, because you don't remember how incredibly traumatic it is. Uh, and he says, therefore, my judgment is we should not trouble these, those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them. But here's, here's the strange part. He then says, we shouldn't bog them down with law. But then he says, but let's give them these laws. And and I want to explain why he says this. He should abstain from things polluted by idols. Paul writes a lot about that very issue in Romans. And it always has to do with unity within the community. What what is at stake right now? What's at stake is division within the church between those, those Jewish believers who really are, they still are deeply identified with their Jewish faith. And there is nowhere that they're told that they have to give that up. They, that they have to give up the law. In fact, when we see the early church, all those initial believers were Jews and they were still worshiping in the temple daily and, and hearing the Old Testament taught. And, and that was an important part of their identity, these Jewish Christians. And yet on the other hand, there's these new Gentile Christians who have no background in, in the Jewish faith and they're coming to pl- place their trust in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and trusting him as the savior of the world. And these two worlds are colliding and potentially creating a division. And what's at stake? If there's a division within the church, why would the world want what we have if we're, if we're fighting within? Isn't that what often creates problems? The world often says, why should I put my trust in Christianity? You guys can't even be in agreement about things that don't matter, let alone the gospel. And so I believe that James is establishing those things that actually, he's saying, listen, you have freedom in the grace of, of God. You have freedom in the gospel, but don't utilize that freedom to offend your weaker brother. These are external realities that he tells me. He says, listen, you are accepted by God, saved by the gospel, but do this as an outworking of God's love toward you. Allow that love to work through you in how you handle yourself within the context of the community. This is very evangelistic even because Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. Because he said, abstain from things polluted by idols. And Paul writes about that when he's talking about how should the gospel work itself out practically in Romans 12 through 16? And one of the things was don't, don't do things that offend your, other, your brother. If, if, there's, if there's sacrifices made to idols, don't go and eat that sacrifice. It's offensive. Why would you try to stumble your brother or your sister? Now, we don't have that particular issue, but there are things that we're often, we're not cautious about. Even my joke in the beginning of what I was gonna call the message that fell flat on many ears, we're like, why would you even mention that? that Pagan work from the. I'll erase it from the message. It goes on online. But my point is, is that there's often things. The, the music we listen to, the food. Like, if I'm with a brother that's, that has a, a history of alcoholism and is clean and sober, I don't offer him a glass of wine, and I become like the person I'm with for the sake of saving that person. In other words. We should be other oriented. What James is giving are laws that, that are rules that should be the outcome of, the great, of God's love being played out, that one way love being played out in my life that makes the other person more important to me than my desires in that particular moment. Abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. We don't have to even explain that. Paul himself says, Don't you know now it's not about about circumcision of the flesh, it's about circumcision of the heart, and that you are literally the temple of God, the dwelling place of God by the Holy Spirit. And when you enter into sexual immorality, which is just as prevalent today as it was then, is that you are actually violating the very temple of God. Keep yourself pure. idols in fact there are two things in the new testament that we're told to flee from idolatry and sexual immorality it's like you don't stick around and try to fight those things you literally get away from them you run from them And I think that these things are still things that we are called, we're to, to keep ourselves from idols. We're to keep ourselves from, from things that are sexually immoral. And from those, and this is a strange one, which I think is contextual from what has been strangled and from blood. And there you have, once again, those, those realities around what may offend the weaker brother or sister within the community of faith. Keep the unity of the faith. That's what grace does. Because grace should not turn us into libertines, and it should not turn us into legalists. First Peter 3, eight says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. What will compel the world that what we believe is true, that the testimony of Jesus is real, that the Spirit is, prevalent, is when we yield ourselves so fully to the Spirit that it is God's love poured out in our hearts that gives us the ability to love others with a love that was not there before that's what grace is about. Grace is unfair because it comes comes to the world freely. and must be received freely. Grace liberates because when we receive into ourselves that free gift, it sets us free from the tyranny of sin for whoever sins becomes a slave to sin. But that grace, that is unfair because it comes to all, and that grace that liberates that freedom is not the freedom to do whatever we want. It is the freedom to then begin to do what is right, because now I'm not doing this that I might be accepted. Because I'm accepted, accepted, I begin to live differently. It is the love of Christ that compels me. I want you to know the freedom of Christ. I want you to pay attention to how the Holy Spirit is leading you as, as a person within the context of a community of faith. I want us to pay attention to how grace that alien work of God is played out in every arena in our lives. Are we watching for those intersections of grace? Are we holding dearly to the gospel and not allowing it to be front-loaded or back-loaded or whatever kind of ways that we want to add to the work of God because we can't add to it? It comes to you in your brokenness, and in fact, in brokenness is the best place to receive it. The worst place to receive, to try to receive grace is with a divided heart, trying to keep one foot fully anchored in the world and one foot hopefully keeping you out of hell and getting you into heaven. That is not how you should live and all you'll create is frustration for yourself because grace is one way love that demands everything of us because the love is so big, there isn't room for all the garbage. May the grace of God purify your hearts and your minds. May the love of God be so poured out upon you that you can say with your lips, but deeply anchored in your heart, Jesus is Lord. Amen.